Morning, church. We will be continuing our look at Romans in chapter 6 this morning, verse 1 through 11. But first, I'd like to tell you a little story. Excuse me. So I think this was around 24 years ago. I was younger and uh, leading Young Life in Ohio, and there was a boy named Mike. I'm going to call him Mike for today. And... We, we had a, a gathering, a Young Life Club, and we met in this kind of dark basement under a big hotel downtown, and it was a large room, close, close to about like this, and we had kind of some white Christmas lights strung up around the side to make it interesting, but it was kind of fun. It was sort of this dungeon, like, you know, hangout location, and kids packed in there, and uh, this kid, Mike, was probably the most notorious sinner in the school, and we were delighted to have him there. The hope and intent was that we were reaching some people that had not heard the gospel. And uh, <laughs> at one moment at the end, I was giving a talk from the scripture, and we were, we were talking, we were trying to get people to understand sort of sin and God's holiness and the distinction and difference there to edge them toward the gospel as a solution. And so as an illustration of that, I said, okay, everybody stand up. And I, I read through the ten, ten Commandments, and I said, just sit down if you've ever broken one. And if you ever do that, you kind of got to, for, for teenagers at least, reorder them a little bit and stick the stealing and dishonoring parents near the end, because if that's the beginning, everyone would sit down, you know. But they hear murder and like, ah, not me, you know, various things, have no other gods, nah, not me. And so we're, we're going through this list, and I, and I think the one I had stated 10th, was stealing. And so this, this guy, Mike, he's in the middle of the room, and he's just standing there smiling. I mean, by, by near the end of this list, everyone sat down, he's just, and everyone's completely laughing. You know, they're like, of all people, this guy's still standing there. And um, <clears throat> by the way, prior to that, we did this one little skit thing, and, you know, I pulled this guy up, and you don't always have complete control over these things. And he happened to disclose a joke that was not fit for the occasion. I'm like, oh, hey, okay, good one. We're done here. Moving on, you know. So, I mean, he had already done that, like literally 15 minutes before. And um, we're there, and he's standing, and everyone's pointing and laughing. And, and uh, he's like, what, what? I get to the last one, and, it's, and it says, you should not steal. And at that moment, his buddy's sitting, and he's standing there. And his buddy sitting next to him is like, Mike, you're literally wearing my shirt right now that you stole out of my locker. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, and sits down. Uh, quite, quite the occasion. I actually came to find out after that evening that the entire time he was there, he was also drunk. So, you know, this is like a hyperbole, an extreme example of what it's like sometimes when we think about sin and God And that's what Romans addresses. It's actually Paul's lengthiest treatment of the gospel of grace. And he has to deal with sin and people and the recognition of sin and the holiness of God. And how's that fused together in the beauty of the gospel? So uh, that was one uh, quick anecdotal illustration about sin. We'll return to it later. So if we look at Romans chapter 6, we're looking at verse 1 through 11. I'm going to reread some of it here, and then we'll just back up and kind of read and riff our way through this. 
This is uh, Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we, this is verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. And let me just skip down to verse 11 as almost a summary statement of this section. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. That's the gist of it. Let's just review this. I, I believe the first two verses are kind of a what, and then what follows after it is sort of the why and the how. So we almost have this logical question posed at the beginning of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul abruptly answers that hypothetical question, by no means. And so what's going on here, uh, most likely, he's not yelling at his audience. They're probably not guilty of this licentious living as if there is no law to abide by. It's most likely that this is a logical question, a bit of a polemic that he's anticipating. So he's writing this letter to a church in Rome. It's a lengthy explanation of the gospel. And he's probably anticipating an objection that would have been somewhat common as this unbelievable good news of the gospel of grace is landing on a people that had a very high understanding of law and obedience and sometimes that for merit to earn God's favor. So he's, he's inserting this amazing gospel and it's probably not that people were going, oh, good, great, thanks for that good news. Now I'm just going to sin my life away. Eat, drink, and be merry. Who cares? That probably wasn't as realistic and practical as it was cognitive. They're going, okay, but won't that extend to people just not obeying? It, it was more of a hypothetical, logical uh, objection that Paul's anticipating. So he's explaining this. And now we get to kind of the why. But, but let me first give you, uh, I have several statements from John Stott's commentary, which I thought were really useful on this passage. And I think here's sort of a thesis from Stott. We must realize that we are now what Christ is, namely dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And so as we walk through this, I think that's what we'll see. That's Paul's answer to this objection, well, gospel of grace sounds good, but won't people just forget about it? And But no, the idea is there's such a connection that, that we must realize that we are now what Christ is. That's a radical statement. It's, it's union with Christ. Remember that buried in baptism? We're, we're in him and he's in us. So that's a shocking thing. And because of that, our inclination won't take joy the rest of our life in forgetting about God as if there's no spirit in us, as if we were not connected and unified with him, and just go on sinning aimlessly, without care. Paul's trying to debunk that notion. 
So let's look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's the first part. That's the first part of union with Christ, this baptism into his death. Again, Stott says this, our baptism was a sort of funeral. Yes, and a resurrection from the grave as well. He's getting at this two-part thing that we kind of see. It's almost like a teeter-totter. We understand buried with Christ, but the flip side of that is made alive with him. So yes, a funeral, but also we're in Christ, so there's this resurrection life that's now ours through faith if we have believed the gospel. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, see the connection, the personal application, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the answer to this hypothetical conundrum of a gospel of grace may lead to a who cares lifestyle. No, we walk in, this is so real, we are able now to walk in newness of life. That's the upside of this whole thing. Buried with him in Christ, now because he's resurrected, that resurrected life is in us. We're not perfect yet, but we have this ability to walk in newness of life, powered by Christ, powered by the Holy Spirit within us, no longer in the flesh alone. So think about that idea of walking, walking in newness of life. Let's, let's take that back to the image of the tomb. When Jesus resurrected, he, okay, this is over, I mean, this is a really simple statement. He walked out of the tomb, <laughs> you know, he didn't camp out in there. And if our life is patterned after him and he's leading us through the Spirit, that's, that's our walking in newness of life. We don't have to sit in that cold, dark tomb. We're able to walk out of that just because Jesus did. That is the gift he gives us. It's a freedom from the bondage of sin. Not to say that we will never sin. We will. But there's now this ability to walk in newness of life. Stepping out of the tomb, so to speak, in the same fashion that Jesus did. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, excuse me, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Certainly. Without question. That certainty doesn't change based on our sin or doubt. It is a certainty obtained by Christ. Um, that was verse 5. Okay, so I, I would like to insert here an idea. So verse 5 so we've been united with Christ in a death and also in a resurrection. Do you see that two-part thing again? In death and in resurrection. That's how we're united with Christ, verse 5. I think it's helpful here to grab a framework in a couple words that the Puritans brought to us, namely John Owen. He talked about mortification and vivification. Not all of you are familiar with those terms. Just think about it. Mortification, that's mortify. That is kill it. Okay? And then vivification is the idea of life, vivified, vivacious. Both aspects are in play here because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Mortification, vivification. So here's what Owen said about mortification. Leave sin. You kind of have that idea of departing and walking. Leave it. Walk out of the tomb. Leave sin 
with neither being nor life nor operation. Don't let it kind of get its fingers around you, you know? That's That's a dead thing. Leave it. That's mortification. But I think what the Puritans brought to the table was that's only half of the equation. It's not just the negation, the negative aspect. Well, don't sin, hate that stuff. It's dead. Remember that. It's also, and then walk in newness of life. That's vivification. Live it out in the joy and freedom to do so. We can do that. And there's, as those, so I would consider this walking like steps. That's what, um, that's what Owen, in a, in a framework that Owen put it. So imagine this, walking for most of us involves two legs, and if some don't have that ability, at least the illustration works because we've seen it. So imagine you have two legs, a right leg and a left leg, and we're walking in newness of life. It's almost like that first step in the right leg might be mortification. Developing a disdain for sin, it's a stinky dead thing, I don't have to obey it, I can still do it, but... I'm noticing there's a little urge in me from the Spirit to mortify that. So I'm going to take a step and sort of negate the sin. That's only half of it. You don't get very far with one step. Okay. But the second step is life in Christ. That's a vivification, a joyful communion with God. Now we're moving. Mortification. Vivification. Mortification. You see, it's, it's kind of laid out that way in this ambulatory framework of walking in newness of life. Those things really go hand in hand. That is helpful for me when I think about it. It can almost be a sad effort to always be like, kill the sin, kill the sin, kill the sin. Whoops, I sinned. Kill the sin. Whoops, kill it. But there's also that vivification step of, you know what though? I feel a little different. And and look in the rearview mirror. Are there little aspects of your life that show a little change? Even once in a while. Be thankful for that. It's a result of the gospel. That's vivification. That's your friend of the Holy Spirit just changing you over time. That's how sanctification works. It may, may also be said, a, a way to another phrase that works here is remember your baptism. We say that. A lot of Reformed traditions say that. That's a short statement. Boy, is it loaded. Say that to yourself. This This is in the context of baptism and what Jesus has done. Remember your baptism. Oh, okay. But what's that mean? Death, resurrection. What's that mean? Walking it out, newness of life. That's another short phrase that I think is just helpful to think about the essence of what Paul is laying out here in Romans 6. Remember your baptism. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. So that's that image again that um, you know, we're no longer enslaved to it. There's a freedom and a power. It doesn't mean we won't sin, but it means we have the ability to walk one step at a time in this newness of life, So think about the freedom aspect. Maybe we'll run with a couple analogies here. If we were formerly enslaved to sin, we don't have to stay on that plantation, obey the same master. We may choose to from time to time, linger around some stuff that's kind of old life sin, 
Or similarly, I, I mentioned the tomb. You know, we don't have to crawl back in there. That's kind of a dead place. We can walk out. The door's open. Or think of a prisoner set free. Imagine the, the jail cell door is blown off the hinges. Well, we may kind of want to crawl back in there once in a while and kind of sit in our dark corner. But the point is, there's freedom. We are no longer enslaved, imprisoned to those same things. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. See that again? Death, life, mortification, vivification. It's in Christ. We are in him. He is in us. You see in the connection? That's the explanation. Verse 11. So, you also must consider yourselves, because of Christ, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the beautiful implication of the good news. We learned prior in Romans how this all worked itself out. The unbelievable plan of God to save sinners like us. That's the wonderful good news. And this, this is the application in chapter 6 of that good news. Because we're connected, what's it mean for us in daily life? Like, okay, that gospel makes sense, him for me, but here's how we live it out. It, it, it's really a beautiful thing. So it's Paul's sort of like, at, at chapter 6 in Romans, it's his kind of parenthetical bracket on living. It's not, he's not done yet. Wait till we get to chapter 8. I mean, we're about to the, you know, American 4th of July here, and we think about fireworks and grand finales. Wait till we get to chapter 8. That's the real fireworks and grand finale. But we're in this point at chapter 6 where here's what the gospel is, here's what it means to you, and there's more. Wait till you get to that. It's great stuff. So I think I'm going to summarize here at the end of this 11th verse with a short paragraph from Stott because I, I think it grabs the whole thing very well. For us, then, it is like this. We deserve to die for our sins. And in fact, we did die. Though not in our own person, but in the person of Jesus Christ, our substitute, who died in our place, and with whom we have been united by faith and baptism. And by union with the same Christ, we have also risen again. So the old life of sin is finished because we died to it, and the new life of justified sinners has begun. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven, it's begun. Your death and resurrection with Christ render it inconceivable that we should go back. It is in this sense that our sinful self has been deprived of power and we have been set free. That's the truth. Deprived of power, we have been set free. Uh, one last analogy. I just sort of thought this one up on the drive here, so try it on for size. <laughs> but you know, if... It, I'm thinking about mortification. Sin's dead, but you can still smell dead things, right? And if you're in old life, that aroma was actually appetizing. Every now and then, 
you know, you're driving down the road and there's a roadkill possum, and it's like, hmm, I remember the smell of that. Now, in the new life, we don't eat on that stuff. So imagine, like, a buzzard eats the roadkill possum. That's sort of like what it was. But the new life is like a soaring eagle over a beautiful, clear stream, scooping up fresh water and fresh fish. And that's kind of us in Christ now, but there's still a part of it's like, I remember those vulture days, you know? <laughs> but, but the point is we don't have to. Our appetites actually change. And, and we see that developing over time. He can change us. And we have the freedom to, to live differently because of Christ. So let me close. I'm going to return to Mike. Remember the opening story? Notorious Mike? Uh, the, the, the most notorious sinner. And it just seemed to bounce off of him. There wasn't much conviction, sense of care. But it was about a year later, I sat with him on the steps at Saranac, one of our Young Life camps in upstate New York, and he had just heard the entire gospel. And he sat on those steps and sobbed. And it was different. Um, it wasn't easy for him after receiving Christ, but you could watch the chief of sinners in his culture just come to grips with the fact that vulture life eating on a roadkill is not the life God intended or designed, and there's so much better, so much better. And uh, he just sobbed, and I, I think it was for two reasons. I think, first, it was understanding. He was the object of God's great affection in this rescue plan where Jesus was his substitute, and it sort of undid him. But secondly, I think he realized that life of sin wasn't his new appetite. It wasn't nourishing. And all this reality kind of came flooding out of his eyes. And um, like I said, it, it wasn't easy for him after that, but it also wasn't the same for him. And, he, you know, he slowly grew and he tripped and fumbled and stubbed his toe, but change was happening. He was free to experience life in Christ that he had never experienced before. And I'll even share this, at the risk of possibly being misunderstood. S several years after that, he called me once out of the blue. He was living hours away on the coast and said, I just wanted you to know, you know, I, I've been growing. I still have that Bible you gave me. I've really been digging into it, and I've recognized that alcohol still has somewhat of a grip on me. I'm in a program, and I'm doing better. And I'm, I'm seeing this change. And you may, you may see that as something that almost negates the gospel, but I don't. I see it as an affirmation of real change. His appetite had changed. He was actually mortifying something in his life that he was still returning to, and he was learning to vivify the goodness of Scripture and the Holy Spirit and Christian fellowship, and he was growing. And that's how it goes. That is the potential freedom in Christ that I think I'm trying my best to describe because it is deep from Romans chapter 6. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.